Happy Mother's Day, everybody. Say it more than once. It'll go better for you at job review and raise time. Happy Mother's Day. There you go. Let's go. O Savior Christ, who leads us to immortal blessedness, grant that we, being weak, presume not to trust in ourselves, but always to have you before our eyes, to follow you as our guide. Only you know the way, but lead us with you along to our heavenly desires. Through Christ we pray to you, Heavenly Father, with the Holy Spirit, and glory to you, Holy Trinity, forever. Amen. All right, good to see you. Uh, If you put money... If you put money in the basket, it'll go to Spain or the DR or Arthur Just, that miscreant. It'll go to one of those guys. It'll go somewhere. It'll go somewhere international along apparently with a smiley face. That's where it will go. So (laughs) you put money in the basket, it'll go somewhere fun. Uh, We have special guests uh, today. Um, My Portuguese is limited, but we want to assure you of our good welcome. David, if you can translate. This is Miguel's brother David and his parents. So, a little round of applause for them. We're very grateful that you would spend time with us. Thank you very much. It's very nice. Uh, So, this is it for this year. Next week, if you come back, we'll vote on a a budget guide, a spending guide. We'll also vote for people into the governing board. And so, uh, comment this week. Next time, we'll do those things fairly quickly. Elders, if there's enough time, we'll meet together after at least to look each other in the eye and see if there's anything we need to talk about. Um, and there's a governing board next week, too, but it'll all shake out. Questions about anything? But I know this is busy, busy time. People are uh, coming and going. Anybody need anything? All right, here's where we've been through the whole year. If I could put bookends on it, it would look like this. Uh, to start... I would um, say a single thing, which is um, the hope that your prayer would become active rather than reactive. So that's sort of the beginning thing, that your prayer would be an active thing rather than a reactive thing. And then to end, which is the last line of what I gave you today, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, when you pray... God gives you what you ask or something better. So everything is between those two poles. That your prayer is meant to be active rather than reactive. Anybody can pray when the plane's going down. But uh, to be active on a regular basis, disciplined. And then uh, to to pray with the confidence that when you pray, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, God will give you what you ask or something better. Now, We've been kind of a long way. If you, kind of, if you think about where we've been, this is where we've been. The whole notion that God is answering before you ask, that God is listening before you speak, that God is giving you gifts that you can't possibly imagine, right? And that these gifts aren't only for you, but for your friends and for your family. So we looked at texts where you carry your friends and family to Jesus and also where you carry the gifts of Jesus back to your families and friends. And then in the ultimate gift, Jesus gives us his own prayer, which you're free to pray as our Father. So you are able to think of yourself as beloved, as one whom God loves. Because you're baptized, God looks at you and sees Jesus. 
So what he says of Jesus when Jesus is baptized, this is my beloved child, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. He looks at you in the same way. This is my beloved child. You are my beloved. And for you then to claim that status of being beloved with regular active prayer where you are part of the family, so much a part of the family that it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and you're able to give God advice about what you want and what you think is best. And so we looked at the text where the Holy Spirit in Romans 8 carries your prayers, searches your heart and carries your prayers to the Heavenly Father. In Romans 8 again where it says Jesus himself prays for you all day long. So you're brought into this swirl of the Christian life where you're praying and Jesus is praying and the Holy Spirit is praying and you're praying to them and for them and they're praying for you. And all of that bubbles up to the Heavenly Father whose only interest is having all his children home again, right? And so I you quickly, um, I didn't get it. I thought of it late. Um, but the margin comment for last week, you know, you get these old guys, Nagel and Furhan and Scare, and they, they write, you know, a brilliant page or two at the end of their life. This was the front page from last week. It's very important that... God doesn't have any enemies, so you and I don't have any enemies. Just the first couple of lines. The hardest commandment to keep is this one. Love your enemies. But this is not a commandment. This is just a description of God. It's what God is all about. He loves his enemies because they are his enemies. He is not their enemy. He has no enemies. This is what the cross is all about. You have no enemies not at least enemies in flesh and blood. This is terribly important to understand, that all the enemies that you have are in the um, way of powers and principalities. Your enemy is darkness. Your enemy is sinfulness. Your enemy is hate. But human beings are not your enemy. As much as God wants you home, he wants everybody else home as well. Now, the last little bit of this that we'll do today is not obvious um, in the sense that your spiritual life is meant to be active. Your prayer life is meant to be active. This is the reason the church meets on Sunday. This is the reason it has the prayer offices. This is the reason monks pray seven times a day. This is the reason the Jews prayed twice a day at the temple. Your prayer life is meant to be active. On the other hand... God has a very different notion of active than you do. So very often when people um, become Christian, they want to go do great things for God, which often look very aggressive, right? But there's no need. There's no need, especially in your prayers. And so we looked at these uh, two texts last week, and we'll finish them up today, that went like this. The first one is, begin everything in humility. And you remember, and it's from, I don't know, it's just in the beginning here, the the key to humility is memory. So I gave you the whole psalm, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord or pray to the Lord. This is the third page in. Don't forget the one who forgives you, the one who heals you, the one who redeems you, the one who crowns you, the one who satisfies you, the one who works mercy for you. Don't forget... Don't forget, verse 13, that the Lord is a father who shows compassion to his children. Don't forget that he remembers you. Don't forget, right? 
And when you remember that you live only by the grace of God and you live only from love, when you remember this, it relativizes your whole life. When you remember this, you no longer understand yourself as self-sufficient. And so the, off, the story I've often told you, remember who you are, right? Um, remember who you are. You, you know, you send your kids off to high school or out on a date or off to college or something. Remember who you are. You're beloved. You're <laughs> baptized. Now, the beauty of this is that while it seems quiet and passive, it's actually this great form of rebellion. Prayer is the great form of rebellion against the natural world. And I'm right at point five. I'm just reminding you what we do. And the most interesting thing about this, perhaps, is how often Paul tells you just to stand still. Like, just stand still. You don't need a crusade. You know, you don't need to blow people up. You don't need to mark people as your enemies. Um, stand, stand firm, stand still, stand, stand. Right? And so we got the context of that last week, which is in the Roman army, there were two kinds of soldiers. There were the Marines who always pressed forward. And then there are the sentries, the bulk of the people, the bulk of the soldiers who kept watch. Without some special gift or calling, you are the people who keep watch. You've been put in particular places. You have particular jobs. You have different families. But you're meant to do the good that God has given you to do wherever you are. So this is why there can't be a distinction about pastors or priests are better than normal people. It just depends where the Lord has put you. So it's very important for you to, wherever you are, to gently... Pray for people and live in the image of Christ as a beloved child of God. And not to act with hatred or aggression. It's not given to you. Vengeance isn't yours. Hatred is not of God. And you have no enemies. The Lord will sort it out. Okay? So this is about how far we um, got last week. Along with the notion that standing guard, actively awake, listening with vigilance, paying attention... And doing that for the good of other people, not just yourself. If you fall asleep, the penalty was death. Why? Because you endanger the whole empire. You endanger not just yourself, but all the people around you. And you give ground to what's evil, to the enemy. So he takes this metaphor of how things work uh, when you say your prayers. So that's as far as we are. There you go. You know, six months in one ten-minute swoop. Just questions about any of that stuff? And then I just want to finish you up with that. Questions about any of that? Yes, hey. Yes. I've seen Hadrian's Wall, but not the port thing. You're, so when you're talking about that, is it like there's a gap in the wall like this where people get through and you stand in it? Do you actually stand in the wall? Yeah, there's a, the wall goes through a farm. Yeah, right, 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 right. You know, and you're in there. And there's, it, it's kind of like there used to be a little guardhouse in the yeah, we'll talk about that in just a moment. At the, toward the end, we'll talk about Moses in the breach and you in the breach when things go badly.
So, but first, just kind of normal life. Yeah, it's a very, it's a, you know, it's a powerful image when you understand it. Anything else just about any of that? Please, John. Uh, and we've kind of had this conversation before, but where do you draw a line between uh, standing against evil and turning the other cheek? Well, you can do both of those things at the same time because you understand that um, um, sometimes, and we're actually going to do a little bit of this today, sometimes standing up for good means that you get wounded. Now, uh, this gets complicated, and I would ask you a dozen questions if you came to me, like, are you talking about your family, your church, or, your, or politics, right? I would ask about, is this self-interest or interest in somebody else? So you can't stand by and watch somebody else be murdered or hurt. But here's part of it. You can't stand by and watch people be murdered or hurt who would classically be defined by others as enemies. This is why the political rhetoric in, in America is so wrong right now. People are define other people as stupid enemies, right? That's why it doesn't work. That's why nothing works. Because you dehumanize other people. When you dehumanize them, it's very easy to do them in. That's the dangerous point. So you almost have to go bit by bit, but your first reaction is not to lash out, right? Your first reaction is to turn the other cheek. Now, on the other hand, um, you also, you're a dad and a husband. You have people that you need to protect. You live in a place where you understand that the freedom that you have is better than the not freedom that you don't have. So there's things that need to be protected there. But, you know, kind of clearly, rationally, thoughtfully with... Um, an emphasis on what's good and right and true. Holy cow, you're already out of the stream of both political parties, right? Yeah, so. All right, um, I'm just at point seven. Anything else just to check it out? Okay. So here's the interesting thing about you. Uh, seven, standing means there's no need to seek out the enemy. And this is true in all parts of life. Um, you know what? Evil is going to find you. Trouble is going to find you. You don't need excessive risk. You don't need to go find evil. You don't need to find trouble. Trouble is going to find you. You do need to live your life boldly, and you can't sit at home afraid in a bunker. On the other hand, um, evil is going to find you. Okay, It just is. And the reason is, is because evil is, derives its power from the good. So unclean spirits are attracted to what's holy, and they only live by stealing and corrupting holy power. The most sensational thing that you know about this is that when um, Satanists steal a host and then use it in a dark mass, they don't control Jesus, by the way. This is, but there is this notion to desecrate what is holy, right? So the demonic um, always steals from God. It doesn't have power of itself, but it comes by... Um, corrupting things that are already already good. And so, you know, the, the great example of this, so that maybe the easiest example for the church, at least, is the abuse of children, or in a family, the abuse of children. There should be no safer place in the world than the church, right? And this is why the clerical abuse of children is the ultimate demonic thing. Everything is upside down. Not only order, but holiness, so um, you do everything you can to prevent this. this is the same as in um, families and workplaces, right? Demonic things are attracted to um, 
what's holy because they don't have any power of their, of their own. Um, and the irony, of course, is, is that the very thing that they, it's like moth to a candle, right? The very thing that you seek is going to destroy, uh, not, the very thing that the demonic seeks will ultimately destroy it. The problem is there's this very painful interlude where evil can have its way. And that's why it's so important for us, you know, in public life, in private life, in church life, to never touch what is evil. If you touch evil, it will take your flesh and blood, and you will give it incarnation. This is why the Ten Commandments are so important. If you touch those things, they have life in your flesh, in your body, right? This is why it's important for you to not touch evil things and confess them if you do. Question? Elaborate on that evil has no, or demons don't have any power. Didn't, didn't Satan have the power to, I mean, doesn't he have the world? Isn't he the ruler of the world? Isn't that power? Not if there's Good Friday and Easter. So Good Friday is the message that he thought he had the power, and um, the resurrection is the, is, is the announcement that he really didn't. And so that's why we can sing this morning, for example, like, hey, we're not scared of dying. Why not? Because dying isn't really a thing anymore. You had your big death in baptism. So it's illusory, short-lived, and a flashbang. So, of course, when somebody dies close to us, the world explodes, right? But properly understood, that dissipates very quickly, days, weeks, months, depending on who it happens to be, right? And in the end, then, we can begin to rejoice. And we even talk about people who, we talk about our death as going over to meet people who have gone before us. And we say that with great happiness. So the power to oppress is really, is not, I mean, I've always told the Christians couldn't be possessed by a demon, but they could be oppressed. Yeah. And yeah. that's not power, though, what you're saying. Well, it is. Um, so here's the thing. I mean, this is an, uh, an old argument, which I myself have struggled with. But even an exorcist will tell you, a person who's possessed, um, it's not a sin to be possessed. I'll just put it like that. Because it's being done to you. It's like if somebody punches you in the nose, uh, if somebody punches you in the nose, it's not a sin if your nose bleeds, right? So people who are, so just, just kind of classic stuff. To be oppressed demonically is when evil leans on you. And so you have health problems or um, you have great difficulty um, in your life or other problems. To be oppressed is external. It, evil press, it, it leans on you and makes your life uncomfortable, miserable. Um, to be possessed, which is very rare, is actually to have the devil inside you, which is a very rare thing, which can happen to people um, without them sinning and without them not being a Christian, very interestingly, because it's the force of somebody else, somebody forcing you into something, another person forcing you into something, right? However, you invite that, you know, classic ways, you know, pornography, sexual abuse, these sorts of things, you invite what's evil to come. There's no good thing about pornography. Just take pornography. There's not one good thing about it. You can't, you, can't, you know, a, a Lutheran um, just wrote a book about ethically, that included a chapter about ethically sourced porn. And you kind of go, right? So you kind of go, you know, this is the great illusion, of course, that you can... Um, 
because these things always, always are evil because they're outside the holiness of what God means us to be. And ultimately, that marriage is an icon of Christ in the church. So, um, anyway, it's a basic rule. Touch good, don't touch evil. Touch the water when you go to baptism. Touch the Holy Supper when you go in today. Let the gospel touch your ears. Don't touch evil, because when you do, it wounds your soul. It's like a knife to your flesh. Sin gashes your soul and leaves you vulnerable. On the first blow, it doesn't kill you, but it leaves you vulnerable in the way that you're vulnerable um, when you get cut, right, or repeatedly cut. So what's your duty? I'm just turning the page here um, to nine. You stay put, right? And we talked about this a little bit last week, but just to kind of remember, humble yourselves before God, which is have this memory of who you are and what's been given to you. And then this notion of casting anxieties on Christ. So we live in an extraordinarily anxious society right now. It's very interesting to think about what that means and what causes that. My own suspicion is because the more we're defined externally by human things, the more anxious we become. The more we're defined internally by Christ and his gifts, the less anxious we become. So when we're defined in human terms from outside, you'll become more and more anxious because you can never live up to what other people will say of you. And this is why shame, for example, shaming is so powerful in our culture right now because people value it. But if you don't care what other people say about you, right? The famous physicist Richard Feynman, who uh, won the Nobel Prize and was a bit of a genius, quantum mechanics and the whole shot. He's spilling out to his wife one day um, about his anxieties. And she, she looks across the table at lunch and says, why do you care what they think? Right? That nails it completely. Why do you care what they think? What's important to think about is what God thinks about you and to cling to how God defines you. You're mine. You're my beloved. You're my child. You're holy. Right? I love you. And that's what um, reduces your anxiety. Of course, every time you touch something that's evil, you redefine yourself from outside. And every time you touch something that's holy, you redefine yourself from inside. This is why repetitive going to the Eucharist, repetitive going to church, repetitive prayer, touch holy things, touch holy things, touch holy things, and it redefines. Holiness takes charge of you, body, soul, and spirit, right? Yes, please. Would, would, would you touch base on the, the final point on, uh, on seven, the, the screw tape comment? Yeah, basically he says, um, screw ta- in, you know screw tape. So C.S. Lewis' book, The Screw Tape Letters, an older demon teaches a younger demon how to tempt people and damn them, right? So that comment is basically, leave evil people alone, or even leave unchurched people, unfaithful people, unbelieving people, and just leave them alone. You've already got those. Don't, don't, you've already, you're already billing for those on a subscription basis. You, you got that. That's already locked in the book, okay? So he's, he's like, the people you need to work on are the people who are here. These are the people you need to work on. Leave, uh, leave other people alone. So an untroubled unbeliever, right? There's no point in causing them any pain. In fact, you hear this in the Psalms. Why do the wicked prosper? Right? 
The wicked prosper so they won't change. That's why they prosper. But it's only prosper for this life. Question? No? Still good? Make sense? Yeah. D- um, let sleeping dogs lie is the way they say it in Wisconsin. Okay? <laughs> All right. So, uh, I mean, Pastor Nelson actually says they're always right. I don't know. But, <laughs> but this, you had this instruction then of cast your anxieties on Jesus. And in the, in the, what's happening there is you have like a level place where you can stack things up. So you take your troubles and stack them up on Jesus. Or you, um, it's like Jesus wearing Velcro, right? You toss things at him and they stick. And you sort of lighten yourself. And Jesus takes care of your sins. This is what it means when we say, Jesus takes away your sins. The only way they can hurt you is if you take them back. So he extracts your sins from you, or you cast your anxieties on him. Or, you know, I just read a a prayer from, um, I think think it was Pope John Paul XXIII, who at night would say, "Um, I'm going to bed now. This is your church. You'll have to stay up and worry about it. (laughs) It's not a bad prayer for a pope, right? Um, and, of course, you can say this about your family or your children or your pastors or almost anybody. Hey, these are, you know, this. remember the great prayer at the end of a baptism. We pray, last thing we say is, and now that this has become your child, right? So if you're anxious about your children, you remind Jesus that they, your children belong to Jesus before they belong to you, right? They, they belong to Jesus as brother and to the Heavenly Father as sons and daughters, so this is the way you toss away um, your anxiety. And then remaining sober-minded. This is the notion of being calm and self-control. We talked about this just a little bit. Kind of the basic definition is when you're sinful, you can't see clearly, you can't hear clearly, you can't think clearly. So reason is a good gift, but it's not running at 100%. It's got a virus. And what forgiveness does for you is restores the ability to live calmly. So now you start to think about what prayer does for your life, which is, remember we talked about the names? So you start with a name. You remember who God is and what he gives. And then you have these particular troubles, and you ask that God would engage these particular things in your life. Calmly, rationally, you tick through them knowing that your troubles aren't really your troubles, they really belong to Christ. Because, why? You wear his name from baptism. You've been cemented to him in the Eucharist. Our lives are bound up in Christ. And that Christ prays for you all day long. Right? The Holy Spirit searches your heart and discovers the sighs that are too deep for you to even put into words and expresses those. And one of the ways you pray to the Holy Spirit is to say, search my heart. And pray for the sadnesses I can't even express. Right? Resolve the anxieties I can't even name. Um, It's this beautiful notion of God always ahead of you. Listening before you speak, giving before you ask, clearing the way before you um, are aware of which way that you should go. This is all kind of bundled up in there. Now I turn the page and I'm going to press you just to, for time, to number 10 which is as you stand, so you have this notion of you're standing in the same place, but you're very active. You know, one thing I didn't talk about at all 
um, because it's a bit of the next step. But one of the things I didn't talk about at all with you is the whole notion of silence, retreat, and solitude. What goes with an anxious world is that people are often very uncomfortable with themselves. And if you um, spend a little time with yourself and there's no distraction, what happens is people do begin to be introspective. And often they find things they don't like much. And so there's a couple of things you can do with that. You can get woefully depressed about that. Or you can distract yourself again with too many things. But Henry Nouwen is really good on this point. He says, you know, you go inside, and you, he said, we realize how ill at ease we are. He has this notion of um, it's like a room with nails coming from every direction, right? And he says, we can't even invite people in. Because as soon as we invite them in, we know that they'll be wounded and they'll hate us, hate us and hate it, right? So what happens with silence uh, is often first this notion that we are very much broken and that nobody loves us and that we're all alone. Wait for it, right? But God has no enemies and you've been baptized and he loves you. And his gifts are bigger than your pains. And what happens then is like the woman caught in adultery when Jesus says, who condemns you? She looks around and, you know, Jesus isn't condemning her, so God doesn't condemn her. The community is all going home. They don't condemn her. And she kind of shrugs and goes, no one, Lord? But, of course, the last person that she has to be reconciled to is herself. And this is often the hardest thing for us, that we can be reconciled to ourselves. Because we normally, if you have any level of self-awareness at all, you normally know more than other people how deep your pain is and how how strong your um, missteps and shortcomings and sinfulness, right? So what happens when people, for example, go on a retreat in silence? Usually they go crazy the first day. But then with some instruction and some direction and some activity, some activity of prayer, things sort of even out. If you ever try this, um, if you ever go to a monastery for a a day or two, um, you might find yourself just going crazy. Right? You just, um, I was in a, uh, when I went on retreat, I went to Big Sur. Because, hey, why should I be punished just because I have to be quiet? You might as well... (laughs) But it's interesting, the only person who talked to me was the monk who checked me in in the bookstore. Everybody else, silence all day long. Prayer started at 5 a.m., you know, they end at 10 p.m. Meals are taken in silence. You come and there's a tray setting on a counter. If you bump into somebody else, you don't speak to them, right? It can make you mad until you come to the recognition that God loves you in spite of all these things. God already knew this about you, right? When we kneel down and we say, you know, the sins I know and the sins I don't know, the sins I've done, the sins I haven't done, sins of omission, sins of commission, all that, it's like, this is why private confession is for you, not for Jesus, 
You're just kind of catching up to what he already knows. But it's only when we can see that we're loved in spite of our weaknesses and our sins that we can create a welcoming place for other people. It's only when we can come to that kind of non-anxious presence that other people can also come and be with us and not be anxious. And frankly, then it becomes a cure for other people. You know, it's one of the, at least on the surface, one of the great things about St. John. It's so, so nice to be here with you. Um, you're happy. You're together. You're not gossipy. You're not complaining. You do sort of swap stories about, you know, husbands who forget that it's Mother's Day, stuff like that. But, I mean, these are national tragedies. They have to come out. So, you know, there are things that you need to talk about. But in general, what happens is people come and see you, and then they say, I want what these people have. Well, what is it that you people have? It is baptism and Eucharist and then the sermon this morning, the word of God, which is welcomed and not grating. So all of these things happen in, um, in good time, okay? Now, I've sort of pushed you through 10. Just remember that as you stand still, it can be cold and long. You can feel it. It's aching sometimes to say your prayers and feel like they're not being answered. But I push you back to this. When you pray, God will give you what you ask or something better. If you can only ever remember one thing about prayer beyond you should pray, it is that when you pray, God will give you what you ask or something better. I'm turning the page. Now, here's the thing. If you do this, you will suffer. Although I think we had a fairly um, uneventful Lent. I only talked to a couple of you who had really been sort of disrupted. But uh, this, so this was actually a nice Lent. I think because a lot of you committed to things, to prayer, to fasting, to giving, to service to other people. And most people seem to come through unscathed. So this was kind of a nice Lent. But we've had other Lents where people have committed to things that's been kind of brutal. Um, nevertheless, that's why Lent only lasts a prescribed number of days. It's 40 days in the wilderness, and then you're done. Because you should just know. So one side is screw tape, where if people are um, uninterested or if they are lost, you leave them alone. If there's dead, there's no sense in raising the dead. Let them be dead from a demonic perspective. But for people who are alive, they regularly suffer. And, you know, it's pastors and their kids and their wives and leaders and their kids and their wives and people as they grow, you know. Um, you begin to attract attention. Why? Because you become more of an enemy and you become more spiritual and you become more light and more love and you're the sort of person that needs to be beaten back down into submission. But... Pasca, Pasco, the suffering, right? This is why you suffer. Um, because then if God breaks you, I'm sorry, if the demon breaks you, what happens is that you're, you're disconnected from Christ. And you remember we talked last time of, of St. Augustine's notion that evil is when things are shattered. So people describe themselves as being shattered. Families get shattered. Churches get shattered. Nations get shattered, Right? And everybody is alone and unloved and at odds with everybody else. That's demonic. What is beautiful, good, true, love, divine 
is that when communities are pulled together in kindness and love, and everybody's for the other more than they're for themselves. Right? That's the image of the Holy Trinity. And so you always remember, this is toward the end, your best defense is staying put under the mighty hand of God. As long as you're under the mighty hand of God and in faith, right? As long as you're in faith under God's hand, you're both sheltered and you can't be broken apart. So I turn the page now. When you are at 12, when you're um, under attack, you use it as a prompt to holy things. Right? This is why I think why people who are about to you know, step in at the Cubs game today, they'll step into the batter's box. The reliever, will, you know, they're trying to see if he can throw it over 100. But you know, a little ball is going to be coming at you 97 miles an hour, maybe at your head, depending on what the last batter. This is why people do this before they get in the batter's box. <laughs> if you were throwing something in my head right now at 97 miles an hour, I would do this too, right? When evil comes, you do holy things. See, so this is the non-intuitive part. When evil comes, you can roll over, you can concede, you can be attracted to it, you can give yourself to it, or you can resist it. How do you resist it? By staying put. You've been put in the church by your baptism. You've been put into the love of Christ by the Holy Eucharist. Right? You stay where you are and you do the things that you've been given to do. This is why the Christian life is not so much about being exciting as it is about being disciplined. You get up in the morning, you make the sign of the cross, you say your prayers, no matter what happens. You go to bed at night, you make the sign of the cross, you say your prayers, no matter what happens. It doesn't matter if it's a great day or a horrible day. This is what Christians do. They remember their baptism, they go to the Eucharist, they go to church, they say their prayers. If you don't do this, you'll be weakened. These things nick and cut. Um, which is why, then, the image is given here of um, dressing up in Christ's armor. So I don't have to go through all of these because they're fairly um, self-explanatory, but the whole point is that it's not your armor. You're supposed to strip off what you've got. Whatever comes to you naturally, that's polluted and weak. So you strip off, right, and you put on the things, the belt of Christ's truth, the breastplate that guards your vital organs, shoes for the feet, right, a shield, a helmet, and a sword, which, by the way, is, in this case, that's used for protection, right? It can be an offensive weapon, but only as it's exercised through prayer. And so you work, I'm at 14, your work is done in the strength and in the power that is borrowed from Christ. You borrow the gospel, you borrow faith, you borrow prayer. You borrow light, and you dress yourself in it and give it as a gift to other people, right? So we don't, um, we don't live by our own power or our own strength. We live from Christ's power, okay? And the last bit is just what I've given you before. Make sure you spot the right foe. Um, make sure that you follow in the footsteps of Jesus, Make sure that you stand your ground. And 17, I'll just close with this. Um, one of the great things, one of the great things about, so there's a story here that's told um, about Israel turning their back to God, and God gets so angry, he is ready to destroy them. 
and then this psalm. They made a calf in Horeb, right? This is the golden calf. And worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God, right? What's divine? Light, glory, holiness, for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior, who had done great things for them. See, memory? They forgot who they were. They forgot what God had done. They lost their minds. They forgot the wondrous works in the Lamb of Ham, the awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, now back to Hadrian's wall, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. So there's a hole in the wall, and God is going to pour through this and destroy them all, right? Moses takes this spot as a sentry, and he plugs the hole. And he absorbs the pain that's meant for Israel. He absorbs it himself in prayer, in fasting, in pleading. This is what you're meant to do as a Christian. You, you, you do all the holy things that you do, but you should know that sometimes that in, in, involves, and this is the kind of warfare that you're engaged in, you absorb what is demonic. You have to go find it. It's going to find you, Right? And you don't have to worry that it'll do you in, because even if it kills you, you're resurrected and you live. So you do the right thing. In every case, you do the right thing. What's the right thing? To love God and love your neighbor as yourself. You have no enemies. This will be very painful, especially in a world and now in a nation where everybody has identified the other guy as their stupid, evil, ignorant enemy. Right? What do you do? You don't play along. You stand in the breach, and you absorb the pain. And because you're defined from the inside, not the outside, you don't have to be anxious about it. Yes, it is extraordinarily uncomfortable, but it can't destroy you. Your life is hidden with Christ, right? So you do what you've been given to do. In this case, it's been a year long of praying. You do that, and then you do all the other things. You go to get your kids baptized, and you go to the Eucharist, and you read your Bible, and you say your prayers, and you pray for those you love, and you pray for your enemies. You pray that God would mercy them and bless them. And destruction is a given to you, so you don't have to worry about that. But occasionally when you stand in the breach like Moses, it'll come at you. That'll be painful, but then that's normal stuff. You saw it on the cross, Good Friday. So... Um, off you go. Um, 18, last thing. Remember, prayer is warfare to the last breath. The desert fathers, right? They go out and they think it's all going to be good when they go out. Not all going to be good, but at least they're going to escape so many temptations. Um, the brothers asked him, amongst all good works, which is the virtue, Agathon, that requires the greatest effort? What's the hardest thing to do? To love people? To tell the truth? To resist riches, what's the hardest thing for you to do? He answered, forgive me, but I think there's no labor greater than that of prayer to God. For every time a person wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, want to prevent him. For they know that it is only by turning in from prayer that they can hinder his journey. Say your prayers and you can't be hindered. Why? Because it's like, it's, like, it's like having a free pass to Amazon. Everything is stacked on the shelves. You can have anything you want. When you don't pray, it's like you never check out. Right? You never finish the sale. Right? You might think about it, which is kind of like putting things in your cart, but you know, you have this, it's all there. It's all stocked with everything that can be pulled out of the name of Jesus. And it's all for you, right? 
And it's meant for you to enjoy it. And when you don't enjoy it, it's not God's fault. It's all for you already. It's like the new Amazon store. You just have to pick it up and walk out the door. Just pick it up and walk out the door. For every time a man wants to pray, his enemies, the demons, want to prevent him. For they know it's only by turning him from prayer that they can hinder his journey. Whatever good work a man undertakes, if he perseveres in it, he will attain rest. But prayer is warfare to the last breath. It is warfare to the last breath. Still, you should say your prayers, because when you do, um, God will give you what you ask for something better. Okay, thanks for the year. we got to um, go to church. Here's what's going to happen. Next week, there's a voters meeting. Then we're, like, we'll just sort of let you lie fallow, as we often do in the summertime. I would encourage you to stick around and have a cup of coffee. Pastors are available downstairs. At least I'll be available downstairs for you. Um, the other guys have some duties, especially... Eucharist for the youngest kids. Put your kids in that. But summer's a good time for you to rest a bit, talk a bit, talk to your pastor to keep the discipline of being here, and then, you know, we'll come back in the fall and have some fun. All right? All good? Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, forever and ever. Amen. All right, love you. See you soon. Cheers.